Good morning. The scripture reading today is found in Psalms 115, 115th Psalm, verses 1 through 11, and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. First Timothy chapter 6. And verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world. And we cannot take anything out of the world. But... If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get into our text this morning, I want to um, ask you to do something for me if you're in this service, and uh, that is that God has blessed us and continues to bring a number of people, and most people, when they come, go to this service first. And so uh, we've had overflow seating that we've been trying to use a little bit, but because of some programming things, we're not going to be able to do that overflow seating in the future. Uh, so that won't be happening in the next uh, week or so. It may not even be happening today. So if you come to the 945 service, this is the only service that you can come to. Please keep coming. But um, come early and sit close, closer, if you will, to help our uh, ushers. If you could move to the 8 o'clock service, yes, there are people who actually come to church at 8 o'clock. It's really wonderful. They, they bring their kids with them, which is a big vision uh, of uh, worshiping together, and then put their kids in Sunday school. Uh, Mom and Dad may be involved in Sunday school class, maybe a cup of coffee. Coffee. I don't know what they do, uh, but we'd love to have you maybe move to the 8 o'clock service or to the uh, 11.40 uh, service. That would be a great help to us just so that we can get more people in. And as well, keep in mind, this is part of the reason why we have a vision for the city. Uh, not only our city needs more churches, which we're looking at in three different areas within our, our uh, Indianapolis metropolitan area, but also we need to be deploying um, several hundred of you to help start new churches uh, in this area. And you'll be hearing more about that in the next couple. Couple of weeks. So um, if you, this is the only service you can come to, keep coming. Don't stop coming. 
But if you can go to 8, do that. Or 11.30, do that. And that will help us. So thanks for um, helping us. You don't have to park far. There's a lot of parking lot. But we want you to come early and sit close. Okay? Can you do that for me? All right. Let's pray. Father, now, would you help us with this very relevant issue what it means for us to have things and stuff, and we all have them. And so would you help us to see how our identity today is rooted in the gospel and what that then means for the things that we have. So come now and help us. Give us new identities grounded in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before there was ever Xbox, before there was PlayStation, before there was Wii, and before there was Nintendo, there was Atari. (laughs) Atari 2600, in fact, with games like Frogger, Space Invaders, Asteroids, and Donkey Kong. I've just dated myself big time. Anybody resonate with those games? All right, there we go. Those were the good old days, weren't they? (laughs) I remember as a child, about 10 years old, back in the 1980s, when the game Pac-Man came out. Even a song about it, Pac-Man Fever. Had little noises that went with the game. Remember that? The game came out, and you could actually play it in your home before it was only an arcade game. Cost $36 in 1980, equivalent today of $110. I wanted the game. I had Pac-Man fever. I wanted it so badly, but my parents refused to buy it for me. They um, were mean parents. No, they weren't. They were, <laughs> they, were, they were good parents who wanted me to learn that you can't just buy whatever you want. And so they said, if you want to buy this game, you have to earn the money. So what I did is I did a paper drive. There was a recycling plant in our city that would give you a penny a pound for newspapers. Those of you students who've just started in your math classes, you like story problems? Here's one for you. How many pounds of paper does a 10-year-old boy struck with Pac-Man fever have to collect in order to earn $36 if the recycling plant gives him a penny a pound? Answer, 3,600 pounds of newspaper. That's just about two tons or 1,000 pounds more than a Toyota Corolla, just so you know. (laughs) So I went with my little red wagon around my neighborhood collecting newspapers and then stuffed them into our garage until finally we couldn't get the car in anymore. And so my parents helped me stuff our newspapers into our wood panel station wagon, borrowed a trailer, and we took 3,600-plus pounds to the recycling plant, and they cut me a check for $36 and some change. I went and bought Pac-Man. Two lessons as a kid from that. First, it was rather awkward when I was going door-to-door, and people would ask me, Oh, what charity are you raising money for? (laughs) I got Pac-Man fever is what I got. The second lesson was that about six months later, a new game came out. I don't remember what it was, but I remember thinking, rats, how am I going to do another paper drive? And that's when I began to get into my little head as a 10-year-old that no matter how hard you work and grab a hold of possessions, there's something just shallow about them. Today we're talking about possessions as it relates to identity, and we're trying to answer some big-picture questions like, who am I, where do I belong, 
and what is really valuable or what is life really all about. We've already looked at I am what I do. That's the first mistake in identity. Then last week we delved in the whole area of I am how I look in terms of beauty and body image. And today we're going to jump into this matter of possessions. What I want to try and do today is walk you through uh, Psalm 15, a little bit of 1 Timothy 6, and show you how possessions have power. And then secondly, to give you the gospel script, which I don't know that we fully developed in the last two weeks. I want to really ground you in what is the gospel script narrative. And then third, I want to link those two things together. And so how does the gospel narrative relate to possessions? Okay. So first, the power of possessions. I probably don't need to tell you that possessions have power. But even still, I want to show you this in five different ways from Psalm 115 in 1 Timothy 6. The first power that possessions have over us is this, is beginning at a very high level, possessions can compete with God. Look at Psalm 115, verse 1, and notice what the psalmist does. He says, not to us, not to us, O Lord. Notice the focus is not on earth. It's not on the horizontal relationships. The psalmist is going vertical. Not to us, not to us, but to your name, your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 2, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So, the psalmist is talking here about idolatry. But the point of the idol, and the reason why the psalmist is addressing it, is because these other nations were worshipping the works of human hands. And he sets in contrast the worship of God and the worship of things which human beings have made. And the reason that these idols are a problem... It's not only because they're man-made, but the problem is that they're man-made competitors with the sovereign God of the universe. What should be given to God is instead given to things that a human being has made. So the first point that I simply want just for you to note in your mind and in your heart is this, is that the things that we make can be bigger than just the thing that we've made. In other words, the problem with our stuff is not just our stuff. Possessions have the potential to actually compete with God for our affections, our desires, and even our identity. Secondly, these possessions can then become objects of trust. Skip ahead. In Psalm 115, and look at verse 8. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Psalm 115, verse 8, tells us that these objects then become trust objects. In fact, verses 9 to 11, he affirmatively calls Israel, instead of putting their trust in these things, these idols, to trust in the Lord. Verse 9, Israel trusts the Lord. He is their, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. There it is three times. Trust, trust, trust. So the contrast is very clear. The power of a possession is not the thing itself. The power of that possession, rather, is the need, the desire, or the longing that is behind that thing. That is the thing that we trust in. That is what we're hoping in. And that is 
how a thing becomes an object of trust. So a possession is more than a thing. It could become the thing. And as a result, these things have scripts with them. For example, if you're a teenager, you walk the halls of a hallway, or you hang out in youth ministry, or you run into any other teenager, there's something about having an iPhone that means you're in. So parents, when your kids are, when they turn three and a half and ask you for an iPhone, (laughs) I dropped that really low on purpose to make a point, um, you need to know they're not just asking for a phone. I need to be able to call you. So I need an iPhone. <laughs> I said, okay, right? How about this phone? You know, it's a, your grandfather used it, you know, or something like that. <laughs> but the problem or the issue isn't the iPhone or the piece of technology. Rather, it has a script to it. It's that really you want to be like everybody else. The luxury sedan is not purchased just because it drives real nice. It's because it signals that you're successful. There's a script connected to it. A well-funded retirement plan. There's a script to it. The script is, I'm secure. I got it. We're going to be good. Don't need to worry. The big screen TV says, there's a script. I have a right to be entertained. Designer jeans tell people that you're unique. I don't shop in the fashion mall. I shop in New York City. Or Gap. (laughs) Or Target. Or Myers. Or let's reverse it. The blue hoodie and ripped jeans means I'm too cool to care. I don't need to think about my appearance. That's so 80s. Retro clothes mean you're a nonconformist. You see, all these things, there's anything wrong with a luxury sedan, big screen TV, anything wrong with an iPhone or a designer Absolutely not, unless that script becomes the object of your trust. Because possessions can signal that we are actually longing for something more. Things like approval and security and satisfaction and uniqueness and attractiveness and popularity. What happens is that possessions become our identity not because of the possession itself. Possessions become our identity because of what we believe the possession will bring us. So the problem with things is not the thing itself. It's what we believe the thing will bring. That's the issue. Possessions can become our identity when they become objects of trust. Here's the third point. Possessions can cause us to be delusional. Stunning to me when I was studying this text, verse five through, verses 5 to 7 says this about these idols. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but they do not see. Notice the, the, the human qualities that they're emphasizing and yet they're lifeless. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in the throat. He spent all that time saying the same thing from various different angles. Why does he take that much time to explain something that seems like it's so obvious? I mean, after all, nobody would read verses 5 and 7 and go, Oh, I didn't realize that that idol couldn't speak. That thing, that thing can't walk. It doesn't smell. It doesn't talk. It it can't see. Nobody would have read verses 5 to 7 and go, that's a new piece of information. Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy 6. 
where he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's not a new thought. I mean, how many times have you heard in your lifetime, there's no U-Hauls at funerals? I mean, we get that, right? That's, that's a given. So why is he saying that? He's saying it because the problem isn't the newness of this information. The problem is that we live as though idols can speak. We live as if they do walk. We live as if they do smell. The problem is, is that we become delusional and we allow, listen to this, a created human thing to have God-like control over us, like an idol worshiper, if someone were to walk in and go, look, why are you bowing down to this thing? Don't you realize, first of all, you made that. You're, you're serving something that you made. It's, it's a work of human hands. It, it has eyes, but it can't see. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. It has ears, but it can't hear. And here you are worshiping this thing, and it has no power. It is absolutely lifeless. And yet, we allow these human things to control us. We become delusional. I mean, how many times in your lifetime have you bought something only a few weeks later or a few hours later going, What was I thinking? Maybe as you brought it into the house and you tried to tell your wife, this is an, an investment. <laughs> and she's like, what? And then she starts asking you some questions. And by the time you get to the end of that question asking moment, you're like, what was I thinking? Or maybe something that you have, you cherish it so much that everyone in your home knows you can use it, but don't you dare break it. Because this is, this is mommy's baby. Her KitchenAid mixer. <laughs> Don't mess with it. Don't break it. It's the car. You know something is too important to you when the loss of it would create too strong of emotions. Tim Keller, in his book on counterfeit gods, on idolatry, says that it's one thing to have sorrow. If you've lost something, that means that you have lost a thing among a number of things. But if you are in despair, it means you have lost the thing. He says when you lose the ultimate source of your meaning, code word here, identity, there are no, no alternatives to turn to and it breaks your spirit. So there is a connection between our identity and the delusional belief that possessions will give us something that we lack. Fourth, the text tells us, particularly 1 Timothy 6, that possessions can open the door to other sins. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced them through with many pangs. Notice the words desire and love and craving. And those words, desire, love, and craving, those aren't bad words. Those are great words. If you desire and love and crave the righteousness of God, those are great words. But if you desire and crave and love the wrong things, Paul says it leads to temptation to senseless and harmful desires, to ruin and destruction, to new forms of evil, even can cause you to wander away from the faith and to be involved in self-destruction. 
See, we were made for more. We were made to desire, to love, and to crave. The issue is not those emotions. The issue is what is the object on which your love and craving and desire terminates. And is it worthy? And if it isn't, you end up self-destroying. We can become like the spider Ungoliant in one of Tolkien's works who built a web in the clefts of a mountain and sucked up all the light she could find until there was no more light. And in her famished state and in her overconsumption, she eventually devoured herself. That is what our cravings can do. Fifth, possessions can make our lives empty. Psalm 115, verse 8, here's what it says. Those who make them become like them. What is he talking about? He's talking about the idols. The idols, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. So those idols are lifeless. And what the psalmist is saying is that those who make them become like them. They become lifeless. They become empty. In other words, we live in a way less than what God has designed. What takes place in the human heart is that when you make possessions your identity, and when you make the thing that you think your possessions will give you your identity, you settle for something far less in value, something that will not ultimately satisfy. 1 Timothy 6 says the same thing, but in a different way. It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. So God is not against gain. In fact, Paul argues in 1 Timothy 6 from a gain perspective. He wants you to pursue gain, but he wants you to pursue the right gain. Timothy calls us to find our contentment and our godliness as those things being the treasure of our life because our hope and our trust and our treasure is God. The problem is is that we lose our moorings and we end up pursuing things that we think are going to satisfy us but they leave us so empty and we end up living rather tragic lives. You ever seen the television program Hoarders? If you haven't, it's, it's a really sad show. I don't know if I've been able to watch an entire episode. It's, it's a story of some person who has some psychological challenges such that they, they fill their house with so many things they can barely live in their house. And, and in some cases, they're even dying for their possessions. The show is incredibly sad because... You see the attempts to try and help the person, and it's just like, what, what is the hold of this stuff that this person has on them? Because, like, their, their bed is just piled with clothing, and if they would just get rid of some clothing, they could, they could gain, the, the, have their bed back, or their kitchen is, like, not even usable. They can't even cook any food because there's so much stuff. And then, it really gets tragic when they bring the, the dumpster in and the people go in and try and help and there's a battle between each and every possession. Sometimes arguments about whether or not that could be thrown away or this person who has like three toasters, they, they won't let go of the toaster even though if they threw away the toaster they could gain a hallway. Or if they just throw away the, the old bananas, they could gain a kitchen. But because of the focus of this one thing that they must have, they end up living a terribly tragic life. You may not be a hoarder. You may not be a hoarder, but I would guess that at some level you can resonate 
with the fact that the power of a thing is not the thing itself. It is what that thing gives us. And man, can it get a hold of us. It's the power of possessions. Let me help you understand what I mean by the gospel narrative or the gospel script. We have talked about this in part over the last two weeks and in discussions with some folks this week we thought it might be wise to give you a summary of what do I mean by the gospel narrative what is the gospel script so there's a lot we could say on this I'm going to summarize it with four key pillars the first pillar of the gospel narrative is this God is holy These are short little statements. I hope you can remember them. God is holy. It means that he is not only without sin, but it also means he is the most beautiful thing in the entire universe. That his holiness is reflected through his glory and everything in life is dependent upon and subordinate to his glory. Nothing is more beautiful or valuable than him, his glory, and his holiness. So that is where you start, that the most glorious, beautiful, attractive, and worthy thing in all of the universe is God. That's where you start with your script. Secondly, the narrative says this, not only is God holy, but I am not. And this is equally as important The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. In other words, we are tragically not like God. Our internal and external rebellion have made us unreconciled to God. And the effect of this condition is an identity crisis because of the brokenness of our heart where we search for wholeness in all sorts of things other than God. And the gospel identity clearly identifies that our root problem with our identity is Sin. God is holy, I am not, and that's why we have an identity problem. Now from there, you got to figure out, so how do you solve that? And the Bible's answer is, Jesus saves. God is holy, I am not, Jesus saves. The Bible says that God loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gospel message simply is, Jesus died in my place in order to address the greatest need in my life, which is my sin. If God is holy, then my sin is eternally dangerous, and Jesus makes it possible for my sin to be forgiven. He saves sinners. He makes sinful human beings forgiven and righteous, and he does it Holy on his own. He does it because of his grace. He changes my relationship with God and that changes everything. So God is holy. I am not. Jesus saves. And then the final one is this. Christ then is my life. This becomes the gospel script. God is holy, I am not. Jesus saves, Christ is my life. It means that since the greatest need in my life has been settled by the work of Jesus... Since the greatest reality in terms of who I am and what I do and what I feel and what I desire has been eternally affected by a relationship with Christ. And even though all of the implications of that are still unfolding in my life, this gospel script becomes the script underneath all other scripts. 
But I look at the world and I see God is most glorious and I'm a wretched sinner and Jesus saved me and Christ now is my life. And that becomes the script that I take into every arena of life, including what I do, including how I look, including the things that I own, and including next week my past and what I've been through. That this narrative of God, you are holy and glorious, nothing is more beautiful than you, but I am unholy and I need your help. Only Jesus can save me and redeem me. And when he does, everything now has been affected by this reality of Christ is all and in all. The effect of this is that it infuses eternal meaning into every aspect of our human experience. From your body to work and rest and money and singleness and marriage and sexuality and children and retirement and death. All of them now have new meaning because they have been infused with the identity under all other identities. Namely that Christ is my life. Jonathan Edwards believed deeply in an identity rooted in the glory of God. Here's what he said. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. See how different this is than any other script in all of the world? It is that God is our good. He's holy. I'm not. Jesus saved me, and so Christ is my life. And then when you take possessions, now you see them through this grid, this fourfold grid. You can see your stuff. And what it does is it shows us the power of possessing the gospel as the ultimate possession so that we can now see our possessions through this lens. What does this gospel identity do? Here's what it does. Ready? Five things. First, What this gospel identity does is it exposes the scripts behind our possessions. You see, by having an appetite for God's glory and by having a trained taste, something that God sovereignly created in your soul for God's glory, it uncovers the shallow and materialistic and temporary appeal of possessions. When you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, Psalm 34a, you can see the world through a different lens. The gospel empowers you then to not put your identity in material goods because you know that these things are not the ultimate thing. And so you can walk throughout the world Monday, this afternoon, and you can hear the scripts that are around you and see them so clearly. I was at an Apple store a couple weeks ago, and man, there is a script in that place. You walk in, everyone's hip, they got blue jeans and blue shirts on, they got earpieces in, and there's like so many, I don't know if they paid all these people to be in the room, but there's like so many, if you kind of left out, there's technology all over the place, a guy checks you out with a device that's barely bigger than a calculator, and he's just, it, it, there's, a, there's a script, that's, and I want you to listen for the script that's like in that store, there's a script in, in, in Walmart and Target, there's a script in the restaurant, there's a script at the car dealership, there's a script in your college, in your school. There's a script in your marketplace. And you are called to be 
a person who has a counter script. And it lets you see the script behind the possessions. Secondly, when you understand life this way, you realize that this gospel narrative fills the need for more with more of God. Let me, let me be clear that the need for more in the human heart is as natural for human beings as it is for us to breathe. God created human beings with an appetite for more. We're never fully satisfied. And the beauty of that is if that appetite could be directed towards the right object, it would be glorious. You could be addicted and have it be for your good if your addiction is God. We were created as consumers, and the problem is not our consumption. The problem is the objects of our consumption. St. Augustine put it this way, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So the gospel gets to the root of our desires by satisfying us with the greatness of God, by satisfying us with the beauty of our redemption. And there is something so satisfying, so rich, and so captivating about the value of God and the beauty of our redemption in Christ, that all other desires seem ridiculously mundane and worthless when you know the beauty of what you have been saved from and to. One of the values of corporate worship, of a corporate gathering on the Lord's Day, is to remind us that there is something bigger than our age group, something bigger than us, there is something larger that God is doing. It's one of the reasons why I'm an advocate for you to have your children worship with you because they need to know that God exists in a multi-generational, big group, large gathering. It's beyond them and they don't understand everything, but that is God and that is for their good. Third, This gospel narrative allows you to enjoy God's gifts without making the gifts your God. You might think, oh, Mark's down on possessions. He's down, I'm not down on possessions. I'm down on things that become the thing. That's what I'm down on. This afternoon, I'm gonna go home, I'm gonna eat a really nice lunch that my wife has prepared for me. I don't have any idea what it is. It's Sunday afternoon surprise. That's what it is at our house. Usually a strange mix of leftovers and sandwiches. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pray over that meal and I'm going to rejoice. Why am I praying over the meal? Because God has provided it. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch a little news, maybe just a short section of golf. My kids are going to ask me some questions. I'm going to say something dumb because my brain won't work. And then I'll go and I'll lay down in my bed and I'll sleep for about 30 minutes and I'll rejoice. God, thank you for a bed and a house. And I'll get up and I'll enjoy a nice cup of coffee and I'll rejoice that God has given me. All these things are possessions. But I don't live for any of them. They're all conduits that say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's the difference. Whether or not your possessions are a conduit to God's glory or whether or not they're a cul-de-sac that says something about you, that's the difference. So if the gospel narrative can be lodged into your soul, you can be grateful for food and housing and transportation. You can smile and laugh and enjoy what God has given. You can rejoice at what is happening around you. You can have joy in the things that God has given. And yet you cannot allow those things to be your God because you know they are not ultimate. So you can be happy and yet also be holy. Fourth, 
It means that you can be content because you know that God is the one who provides for you. If the gospel grounds me in the work of Christ, then my security does not depend on my performance or my gifts or my ability to figure it all out. If life depends on my ability to plan for our future or manage all the circumstances in my life, you'd go nuts. And some of you are going nuts because you're trying to manage all the things. There's so much insecurity. And then you get to retirement and you thought, oh, finally I'm going to be secure. And the great head snap in retirement is, guess what? You're still not secure. You know why? Because no money can truly give you security. It means that you can put away grumbling and discontentment because you can rest knowing God. Apparently, you know what we need and you know that we're going to be provided for because you've promised. And our trust is in you, not in my employer, not in our checkbook, not in my retirement. My trust is in you. And so you can let go of worry and instead choose to trust that God knows what he's doing. And then finally, it means that you can joyfully and intentionally give. I can't not talk about this. Because the best way to affirm that your identity is not in your money is to give it away. And you say, goodbye money. You don't control us. You're out of here. And you let it go. In fact, I would be even so bold to say that you know your identity is too closely rooted to your possessions If you fail to give, let me be blunt. There's no way that you can tell me, my identity is in Christ. Do you give? No. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because I'm not saying how much, and I'm not saying where you should give. I'm just saying that if you don't give, then come on, there's a trust in the work of your hands. A giving problem is essentially an identity problem. And my challenge to you, no matter where you are in this sort of giving mindset, is this. My challenge is that you need to give to somewhere, to someone, to something. Because without that, possessions will become your trust. You need to affirm on a regular basis, Christ is my life and there goes my money. Watch it, just go, get out of here because you do not control me or own me. So when you leave today, there's a table for the youth ministry. There's also a table over here. If you want to have some conversations about how to strategically give to all sorts of things that we're involved in, either here or around the world. This is not about our church budget. It is not about our budget. The budget's doing just fine because there's hundreds of people who don't have their identity rooted in their possessions who attend this church. I'm talking as a pastor that in order for you to really deal with this issue, you need to give. And if some way we can help you with that, we would love to. Because I want your identity to be rooted in Christ, not in, listen, the prevailing God of our day, which is materialism. You see, the power of possessing the gospel means I am not what I have. I am what I have in Christ. And in having that, in having Christ, I have everything I need so that I can enjoy the good things that God gives. I can give money away freely. I can have peace in my soul and not be filled with worry because at the end of the day, I have everything I need. Everything else is a conduit to remind me of what he has done for me in that gift.
There's an old hymn. We sing it often around here. Be thou my vision. Let's confess this together. Let's sing this, shall we? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my life. Let's stand together. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and Thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure. Lord, let that be true. Help us to be a happy people. Help us to enjoy our time on this earth, enjoying all of the gifts you have given without any guilt, without any regret. But Lord, also remind us that these things are not our life. There is a thing beyond the thing, and it's Christ who is our life. Thank you that this hope of the gospel grounds us changes us, and it infuses everything in life with meaning. Mm -hmm. So conform us, we pray today, even more into the image and likeness of Christ who is our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.